0: Uh, thank you all, once again, uh, for spending this time with us. And I just here's what I would love. Uh, if, if, for anyone who gets agenda anxiety and would like to know where we're going, I would love to just give a little overview about where we're going to put your anxieties at ease. Um, I, I would love to start, if we could, just hearing a little bit from Aisha, just because you're sort of a new face on the panel, and I think your background, anyway, I think you've got a lot to offer this, and I just want everyone to know uh, yeah, where where you're coming from in terms of ministry and experience and things like that. Uh, after that, we'll just ask a series of questions. We'll probably start with individuals and then open it up um, to the whole panel. And after each particular subject, I would love to, to, to throw the question to the room so that we don't have to circle back 45 minutes later and try to remember what the subject material was. That feels um, exhausting. Um, and so when you ask a question, I'll repeat it just for the sake of being recorded, uh, make sure we can hear it, and... Uh, and we'll see what bubbles up and trust that uh, the Spirit will lead. Sound okay?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Aisha,
2: would you please tell us a little bit about where you're coming from? Okay. Um, so I'm Dr. Bruce, I'm Executive Presbyter for Atlanta. I do have my team here that I'm really happy to have. Joy Fisher is what we call a Congregational Consultant. So she's kind of the first line of defense. She is a true Marine um, for a bunch of churches. And Lindsey Armstrong is our executive director for um, church development. And she is doing it all. And I'm so thankful for her that um, we actually got to meet uh, through stuff um, in 1001 worshiping communities before I came on in Atlanta. I am probably more of a revitalizer and with a hybrid of new worshiping stuff. Um, I was a solo pastor in 2009 at Presbyterian Church. In that time, um, a colleague of mine, named Ray Garcia, was able to start his nonprofit ministry, a home repair ministry called the Philadelphia Project. And that's just because he bullied me into letting him take over a large portion of the space uh, at our church. And so out of that, um, students from all across the country would come in, I mean, two to 300 kids just filling the building, um, put that once a week for about six weeks. And they would just go around, canvass the neighborhood, and they would go and they would do home repair ministry and the stories and the connectivity in the church getting a sense of this is what it looks like to get to know who your neighbors are to make this um, connection. After that, I went back to my home church as a Presbyterian, which is a suburban church in Wayne, Pennsylvania, and they were looking for a mission pastor. They were also looking for someone to help them with their next big thing. And so this large suburban church bought a small, actually huge edifice but the congregational size was smaller, urban congregation. That's all code word for like big white church that's rich, small black church that's poor in the hood. So, the word. Sure. so
1: um,
2: I really just had to be the bridge between those things. I was a mission pastor and then organizing pastor for what I got to name uh, the commonplace. And so it's a sacred space to do life together. And uh, God did uh, miraculous things there. Um, in about four years and so, what is standing there now is the original church is in the space. There's a community pastor that's doing stuff there's the after school program, there's the connection with the school, there's social service programs, there's um, stuff for adults and um, graduating, um, high school graduation for adults, and th- just all these amazing things happening in that space. And then a worshiping experience once a month that's uh, kid focused. So the kids do the liturgy and they sing and they act out skits and all that kind of stuff. So I um, was sucked out of there to come to um, Atlanta. So. My heart around new things and revitalizing things. I'm able to just be an influencer um, in that way in this new role with my team, which i really
0: think. Thanks so much, I Appreciate
2: it, Darius. Uh, if it's okay, I'd
0: love to start with you uh, because there's a line that you said that uh, anyway. This is this is something I will very much remember, and uh, this is this is my own trans the New Living Trade Translation. But essentially, it was. Uh, where your church arguments are, therein are there treasure, or is there treasure. Uh, you start to notice what's important to a church based on you know, the, point for the points of contention. Um, we have also talked about the fact that you, know, you were a church planter as this thing of revitalizer, so you got to leave some of this stuff behind and start new. However, you're kind of established now. And I wonder if you're starting to see arguments bubble As an established church that's starting to have a little history, are you starting to see arguments bubble up? And is it telling you something about what's important? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, think where,
3: I think wherever there's value dissonance, there's going to be tension and arguments. Um, and I think in any, any community, there's going to be some value dissonance. Um, Sometimes between the leadership in the church and sometimes between the church and the church. So the context of that statement was obviously um, I think I was talking about my dad's church and things of that nature and then even in my experience in an established church where um, (coughs) there were different values and things of that nature. So, um, So the answer is yes and I can't say there is um, probably one, I can't say that there's one value that um, seems to be embraced more by our congregation or that we seem to have more tension around than, um, I'm not quite sure, you know, even though the name of our church has changed, I think to some degree probably most, at least mine, prefer some degree of monotony and consistency. And so whenever there is introduction of new initiatives that may threaten that, then that's kind of when I sense tension. Um, I was trying to think of something specific One of which, let's say, this is really different with with a model of leadership that they had grown accustomed to, not just internally with our congregation, but externally in terms of the way a lot of urban churches are led. So me, who would kind of, in some way, uh, believe in Shared leadership, not egalitarian, um, but collaborative leadership, where people bring those Ephesians four gifts to bear, is a little different because there, there is, uh, particularly in our context, there is this. With the one who is teaching you the most, there seems to be this. There's this illusion of a connection that you don't really have, particularly in a larger church. It's right. So I may mean, not personally know your name, but if you hearing me speak to you every week, there's this illusion of intimacy, and then sometimes there may be crisis that happens, and then the guy that is the S in the group is really going to be the guy that comes to see you and handles that and walks you through that, and that's not the person that's speaking to you, and depending on your degree of involvement in the life of the church, that's going to determine how aware you are of that, so if you go through some of our discipleship modules, you're going to know how we're organized, and if you hit crisis, the expectation is not that your phone ring and I'm on the other end. But if you're a person who just kind of comes and you're at a your space where you're just kind of consumer-like, then you don't know how we operate. And so the assumption can be that that is going to happen. And um, so I think that is a specific example of, of times where there is um, some, some tension. That's
0: very Thank you. Before we move on, I just want to stop there. and a <coughs> follow-up question on that subject in terms of Uh, in terms of where a church's treasure lies, uh, in terms of uh, contention amidst change, things like that. I just want to pause and give space to ask a follow-up question. Please, Tom. So my curiosity about um, revitalization is, uh, I think Keith, you had the picture of that great piece of architecture that had tradition in the front and modern in the back. And I think about robes. And I think about candles and altars and idols, and when we talk about honoring tradition and yet moving forward, going from altars to platforms, how did you experience that? What are your thoughts on that? With a church plank, you kind of start with fresh blank slate.
3: People think that. That's just not true. <laughs> yeah, like people people really think that. I think a lot of people who are revitalizing or renewing congregations, they, I've got friends who look and say, man, you just had it so easy. And I'm like, one, some of the people who plant with you, they're part of the core team, but they're, if they are not unchurched, they have some church experience and they're bringing the residue of those experiences with them. And so there's still the degree of deep program. I just kind of the, the difference with a plant with me is the kind of authority and, that I had and the bureaucracy that we may avoid because we hadn't been around long enough for some of that stuff to get settled in. But I don't think I'm the best one to ask that question, but we, I just, I didn't want to comment on that particular
0: part. <laughs> that, yeah, there,
3: you do have to wrestle through dynamics, particularly if there is an expression of church that is unique for that community. That means that um, even people who aren't church have some semblance and idea of what they think it looks like. And when they experience what you're doing is something different. There's still some deprogramming that you have to do. So
0: yeah. Uh, Keith and Kevin, with a lot of the population in your churches, my understanding is we're relatively new to church, didn't have tons of church backgrounds. but for the ones that did, what sort of deprogramming had to happen? How did you do that well?
2: Hmm. Sure.
4: Um, yeah, we had plenty of unchurched, but also the dechurched. And, I mean, an interesting move that, that, that we made early on, myself and the worship kind of pastor, or we call him the community liturgist, we both came from uh, loose, structured, evangelical backgrounds, and uh, we got saved in this uh, sort of settings. And the journey that we've been on, though, I was just having a conversation with, Robert, this morning, um, about my faith had to evolve for Keith to remain a Christian. So it just had to, it had to, had to grow in some aspects. And one was an appreciation for liturgy. And I think some of my Catholic brothers and sisters have helped me in this. And so I've become more liturgical actually over the years. And I think some of it is because of the. The tsunami of secularism that you have to root yourself in the great tradition. It's the only way we're going to survive. Mm-hmm. Is, As Brian Zahn says, you know, you, you, uh, you want to follow Jesus uh, and not be a part of a church? It might work for you. Your kids probably won't be Christians. Mm-hmm. And your grandkids certainly won't be Christians. Mm-hmm. And, you know, secularism, in my mind, is is I just found out about this little, um, about this little fly that comes and uh, drops its larva on the back of a beetle while it's walking around. And it hatches and it crawls, this is kind of gross, but it, uh-huh. it nestles in um, a little slit on the neck and it gets in and it starts sucking the innards of the beetle, unbeknownst to the beetle. And the beetle does some really weird things for about two weeks. It's walking around. Eventually it just kind of tips over because there's nothing left of it inside and I think when I learned about this through a scientist at the University at Fringe University a biologist I said that's the effect of secularism on the faithful it's not just that in a secular age there's more people that don't believe it's actually that it changes the faith for the faithful it becomes harder things that were assumed it's it's no longer they can't be taken for granted and um where was I going for the what was the question? And so just keep
2: going. You're doing yeah, great. And, and so, oh, in my mind, we're
4: gonna have to root ourselves in something uh in order to kind of stand that. We need this uh plausibility structure. We yeah, we've got some big challenges ahead of us with, with secularism. And that's one of the reasons that I have found liturgy to be to kind of root myself in the great tradition I need that and myself along with the uh, worship leader we we we'd been on a similar trajectory a path and the church was reflecting that journey and so we have a lot of liturgy but we leave some some openness for spontaneity in the service as well but we were meeting in this smaller chapel and it had kind of the, the symbology with the the stained glass and the pulpit and we loved that. I really liked that space. But we we eventually got to a point where we recognized that in our setting it was non-missional. That we were kind of doing these things because it's what it's how we were wired at this point and we weren't thinking enough about our context and what it looks like to reach the unchurched and the dechurched. And in Miami you have that strong catholic constituency and folks that have some kind of they've smelted a little bit but it's they consider it religiosity and all that and so when we moved into this Elks Lodge a community space it was more neutral it actually helped our community a lot and it required us kind of deconstructing myself and the community um, the community liturgists deconstructing sort of how we were going about leading worship critiquing ourselves in a way to become more hospitable to those in our neighborhood and where they were coming from. So that's like a long roundabout way of answering that of how we were, um, yeah, we think of.
5: I think um, we didn't have uh, a lot of deconstruction to do in people. I think uh, our core team, uh, they were involved in um, just I guess contextualization study uh, of the neighborhood. I mean, we we're out in the neighborhood. We we're talking to people in the neighborhood. Some of the people are from the neighborhood, um, and so we've all kept on asking the question: What would a church contextualized in downtown LA look like? Um, and so I think we sort of came to what would what it would look like in terms of Sunday worship uh, together. Um, so. Uh, I think uh, it, in the beginning we actually our uh, uh, we, we started at a kind of a, a trendy restaurant um, and then um, uh, I remember feeling really cool just because the restaurant was trendy and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and then um, it was really trendy uh, and we had the whole space. Um, Because it was Sunday morning and they weren't open, and we somehow got in contact. And then, when we actually had our grand opening, we moved to a nightclub, uh, a huge uh, nightclub, an old Shakespearean theater uh, that was turned into a nightclub so we can kind of turn it back into uh, it's like a globe theater. Uh, And so, um, but there were, there were, Bars on three sides, huge bars on three sides of the church. <laughs> uh, and we, uh, the ambiance was um, kind of creating a sacred space in the middle of the city, uh, kind of a feeling, with lots of tables. Um, and um, so people were sitting around tables. Because we did that because um, uh, during our core group development, we ran the Alpha course. I don't know if you know, but the Alpha course is, uh, uh, starts out with a meal and then there's a talk and then there's a small group catered towards uh, people who are outside the church. Uh, that's how we grew from about 20 to 50 people actually. Okay. Mm-hmm. First Alpha course that I ran in which we ended up with more people uh, at the end. Um, and, um, and so we were used to eating and so we always ate before worship. Uh, and so there were tables all around and then kind of got started and and, our, um, and one of the things we started to do is to tell stories. Um, so there was a lot of, uh, there was at least one major story element, usually testimony, but not necessarily testimonies of people becoming a Christian, but just testimonies of a sliver of their lives. Um, and um, so we had um, That that actually created authenticity in our church because the testimonies were so authentic uh, that um, people became free to share what they wanted to share. So um, um, I think uh, the stories and, uh, you know, we had some candles, but at the same time, um, uh, there was uh, kind of a mixture of contemporary uh, hymn uh, and... um, and gospel uh, and kind of rolling in. So, uh, I mean, that's kind of how we thought out what it would look like. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so I don't know if that answers the question, but. Um, I forgot what the original question was. <laughs> 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 Is it like
2: deep <laughs> it, What was it? Yeah, can you restate the original
0: question? <laughs> initially, Tom was asking about. This was all helpful. This was yeah. great. You did it right. If you're wondering, you, <laughs> 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 uh, you know, Tom was asking about. Yeah, you know, it, it's change, and it's changed from traditions. You know, we talked about robes or pyramids or things like that, and um, how you. That's where. Um, that's where arguments were. And so how did you work through where our treasure was? was kinda, that's, I, th- I think that's the path. Could Wait a second.
2: Just, I just want to say you can revitalize in a rope. So Come I on. don't want yeah. ropes, too. No, I mean, it really can be done. I mean, I'm smells and bells, robes, incense, the whole nine. Like, I love it. But you can also have jazz worship or the dude uh, on guitar you know, in a context I wasn't used to that. So I noticed that particularly at that multicultural church that I served in Philly. And that's what happened. It was revitalization in robes. And so I think the mm-hmm. grief like helping people let go, that all that Pam was saying about the grieving and the let go, I think if you can be a leader and you can talk about the ways in which you have to be vulnerable and letting go, you're really modeling. So I don't know where that comes in the fivefold, maybe it's a shepherd, I don't know. But just, just modeling and saying I'm letting go of things. it's really okay we're all gonna be okay together so just knowing that it doesn't have to look like the platform and the cool boots or whatever it can be robes and helping people let go of some things
0: okay on that front this is something I've gotten really curious about all of you have talked about a personal evolution Um, your own theology your own your own polity your own ecclesiology everything is evolving except your public figures and our culture doesn't do that well. Like, once you become a public figure, you're supposed to be monolithic. Like, you don't change anymore. Um, and we're, we're kind of uncomfortable with people evolving right in front of us. But I think you all have been proactive about that. You included your community in decision making. You've sort of changed from what you understood church to be to not. You, good grief, you've left a, a pretty significant tradition and tried something new. And um, Can you talk about, uh, any of you, about Evolving publicly and doing is there anything that you sort of quarantine off as leaders to say it's not healthy for my congregation to sort of, you know, you keep this to one or two sort of private um, confidants and this other stuff you like? Does that question make sense? Um, I'm gonna
2: gonna jump in real quick. Mine is odd, it's probably not gonna fit any of that. (laughs) No, seriously, like what you don't know if you don't know me publicly, if you don't know me. You wouldn't know that I have a husband who's dying in hospice care in a nursing home. And so when I was at that church in Mount Airy, I had to go through the public thing of my congregants watching my husband's decline to the point where they were like, can you still do this as a solo pastor? So the whole role of grief and decline, while and then starting stuff at Commonplace, was like, I know what it's like to have to let some things go so that you can live in a different way. And so that's a piece that normally, I'd be like, this is nobody's business, but I didn't have a choice Mm -hmm. in that public aspect of my life, having a dying spouse. But that publicity was able to be like a theological unpacking for people Mm -hmm. of what it means to let go and to know that there could be beauty and brokenness at the same time and that you really can be okay and can still stand. So I know that that's a very unique thing to have to do (laughs) publicly, and I would way prefer that it be no one's business whatsoever. But it is very much everybody's business all the time. Um, But I've seen God use it. So I think each person has contextualized, but I know that that does not fit the normative. Thank
5: you very much. Everybody wanted that question. (laughs) (laughs) that was was great
3: (laughs) Um, I would say probably I've I would say at least for me that much of what I would keep there's some things I would keep private I've tried to keep private um, long term there are other things I kept private seasonally. Mm-hmm. So, as my as my as I don't know, I'm not quite. So, as my personal philosophy in terms of the approach that we would take, and and obviously my ecclesiology influences this additional ecclesiology. Um, I'll, I'll just take something like church planting. Um, <coughs> So that I started ruminating on that mentally probably about a year into our plan. But that was something that um, in its initial stages obviously I didn't share a lot about that publicly. I didn't share a lot about that to the lay leadership of our congregation. That was something I kind of worked through seasonally until I felt like we were close enough to um, the actual implementation of some of those things, that it required me to now go public with it. Um, I had to feel confident that this was something that I actually was going to do. And I had to feel confident in um, the life cycle of our, that our church was in a life cycle where we could actually do it. Um, Because at least in my context, when, when I'm rolling something out, they're primarily, in different ways, two types of questions that I get. One, um, can this be done? Two, can we do it? Mm-hmm. And so for me, I needed to feel confident in my ability to answer those questions before I kind of rolled some of that stuff out. But other than that, I would say the things that I would kind of keep private would be personal personal things, like some not, what is my evolution in parenting or what it means to be a husband or things of that particular nature. Um, That would probably be private, but I don't know. Other things would just be seasonal, I guess.
4: I think we tried to create a culture where that was expected and celebrated culture of learning and I mean for instance I would periodically say uh, to the congregation same thing that I tell my students all the time now at least one fourth of everything uh, I teach is wrong (laughs) (laughs) the problem is I don't know what that one-fourth is yeah Yeah. so I pray hard I dialogue a lot I read I'm I'm trying to learn but I know there's you know (laughs) When I meet him in glory, Jesus is going to be like, "Man, great job on this. Are you a little off on this, you know? And, uh, and so trying to, how do you, I'm a really passionate, I'm a really passionate brother. And, but how do I hold things loosely as well and have kind of a humble posture? And I believe it was Kelly Douglas Brown said, you should always do your theology like you do a crossword puzzle. Use a pencil because it's arrogant to use a pen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to go back and erase the answers that you thought you had. And yeah. then sometimes you just have to leave it blank. You have to leave the questions as they are. So I think trying to create a culture where this gets, man, we're, we're learning. We're, this is to be celebrated. And then the flip side is I actually think it's more important for pastors not to manage kind of their um, public personas, gosh, we could have a whole conversation about social media and well, I think it 's less about that, and it 's more about <laughs> the interior like i 'd be more i 'm more interested in does a pastor have someone that they can confess to, mm-hmm. someone that they 're getting soul naked to. Mm-hmm. And I always um, have a spiritual friend, at least one, a spiritual friend. And, I mean, you could call it an accountability brother or sister. I'd rather phrase it as a spiritual friend. Accountabil- accountability is one piece of that, but it's built on top of this spiritual friendship. And, uh, you know, this term that I use of, of soul nakedness, you know. And um, and I would do this. I talked a little bit about Dude Storm. That's one of the spaces where... Um, Vulnerability breeds vulnerability, and as leaders, we have to go. We have to go first. And this was a context in which I would confess my sins and what I'm working through, and how Jesus is processing. You know how He's working on me and shaping my character. And some might go, "Oh my gosh, aren't you? You're the pastor, the leader in that setting. Isn't that a little inappropriate? Shouldn't you just be facilitating?" To which I would say. To the extent that I, you know, whatever spiritual authority I have in the community is contingent on uh, how much I'm actually living this out. And are you are you smoking what you're selling? Mm-hmm. And so I think that's really important to have to be able. Sorry for that reference, but
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, do we have? Are we, Dallas Willard said, you are, this is what I want to say to pastors. Willard said, you are a never ceasing spiritual being. Just marinate in that for a moment. You're a never ceasing spiritual being. All these projects, all this work, all this stuff that we invest ourselves in, some of it is wonderful, but a lot of it is not going to last. And what is going to (coughs) last is your soul and the people that you shepherd and walk with. So, what is more important? In investing in the formation of your character, and we need, so we need to be doing that soul work as pastors and leaders as well.
5: I think our uh, context is very uh, raw. Um, we, when, uh, as I said, we tell a lot of stories um, in all of our gatherings, and. Um, Especially when people from uh, addiction community or people who have experienced homelessness, abuse, they start sharing really raw stories. It's uh, uh, it creates a culture in the church, um, and uh, so I didn't actually start that, uh, but I became a part of that culture of being raw, <laughs> and uh, to the extent that um, you know. I, I I talked about my failures, my issues all the time, uh, as illustrations of yep. sin or whatever in uh, in a sermon. So I, I've always felt like you know if I'm talking about sin, you know I need to give an example from my life, not somebody else's life. Uh, and so um, almost to the extent that my wife said, "You're actually spinning yourself to look worse than you actually are," um, and. So I go, okay, I, I can't do that. But that was the culture, that it was okay to do that uh, in um, uh, in our church. And so I think I was very uh, open and um, vulnerable throughout. Um, and one of the things that we said all the time is that we're all sinners living in God's faith and grace. Uh, that's who we are as a community. We're messy people um, just struck by God's grace. And so... Uh, Um, So we, we, um, uh, I needed to okay that. Um, But there were certain things that I uh, did not share, Uh, uh, you know, wisdom dictates it. Uh, Like you said, some are seasonal in a sense that when I'm in the middle of something and uh, unresolved or when it uh, actually deals with another person in the congregation, it would be inappropriate uh, to share anything. and um, um, the other aspect uh, of limitation um, is something that my wife and I kind of um, talk about a lot. She's much more sensitive to it than I am. Um, and because we are in a uh, multi socioeconomic context, um, like when we go on vacations, um, uh, she does not want me to put up, you know, we're on vacation, look at this hotel that we're staying in type of pictures and on social media. Uh, she thinks that that creates distance between part of our congregation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and so I, I think there's some merit to that, but on the other hand, I feel like it is what it is. Uh, so. <laughs> there, So she wins all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, so those are some of the uh, areas. And so I don't really try to manage a public persona. Uh, I, 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 uh, you know, um, yeah. So I just kind of let it be because that's what I want the church to be. So, yeah. Thank you.
0: I'll repeat that back and buy you all some time to formulate an answer, so I'll say it slowly. Um, Thank you, Rick, very much. Uh, The question was, at its heart, um, how do you uh, continue to develop your theological perspective, your missional understanding? What are the ways uh, or sort of influences that keep that moving on? And, you know, for Rick, it was teaching and studying to teach grading papers, that sort of discourse back and
5: forth. Probably, I should probably go first because otherwise that side is always going worse. <laughs> 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 yeah. I want to be fair to you. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think, um, um, yeah, I read a lot. I think that's really important. Um, and I cheat when I read in a sense that I don't really read the whole thing. I. Kind of start guessing what they're going to say, and oh, you know, kind of. Uh, but some, some books you just kind of marinate on, and some books you kind of have a sense. I I, I love to uh, read books that have to do with the context as well, as contextual exegesis as well as biblical exegesis. Um, I think they're both really important, and I think um, um, I think um, it really helps us think. I mean. Um, and I try to read people that I disagree with, um, as well as people that I generally agree with. I haven't really found an author that I agree with 100%. I don't even agree with myself 100%. So, uh, you yeah, yeah, I listen to one of my old sermons and go, hmm, you know, that quarter 25% sticks out. You know? I would not say that. Uh, so. Um, so you know I, I think it's really important uh, to just be rigorous, uh, so I, I do have that uh, discipline, and also there are uh, a few uh, uh, leaders that I follow very closely uh, that help, that have helped form me um, and um, but I, I, there are people that I don't agree with um, all the way uh, so um, it's helpful and I'm, I'm, I'm constantly looking for people. So I'm kind of getting discipled by these people I, I don't have personal relationship with. Uh, and then there's a um, group of um, group of pastors that I get together with where I'm constantly trying to, uh, you know, exchange notes. And um, I'm, 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 As much as I'm concerned about theology, um, I'm also very concerned about how to. So how are you doing your discipleship? Is that working? Why is it working? What are, so I'm constantly thinking through those things because uh, I, I'd rather see a model that works and evaluate it in my context to see if it might work uh, before, I wanna, before I try it in my church. If it failed, I want to know why it failed. Uh, sometimes it's worth doing even if it's risky, um, even if the probability of success is bad. You know, if there's a worthiness of the goal, sometimes it's worth doing. But so I'm constantly kind of um, tinkering with that. We we, we collaborate together uh, as a pastoral staff, so we're we're constantly talking about stuff, uh, about things that we need to evolve in, things we uh, we need to change. Um, and um, and partly, um, you know, uh, I have some rhythms of spiritual practices. Uh, that have been very helpful in kind of changing um, uh, thinking forward. Um, and um, one of it is actually uh, I, I try to go away once a quarter. Um, overnight kind of retreat, silent retreat at a monastery. Uh, and I'm just my focus is just silence and trying to listen to God and through the scriptures and just uh, just. I usually have a question or two that I want God to answer you know uh, I'm a, sort of a contemplative charismatic in that setting uh, and so uh, is that a synonym? <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh, so I do that it helps me kind of pull things uh, pull things together uh, it really does kind of like waking up in the morning and some of the issues that you're thinking about just connects uh, in your head. Uh, I think the, the time of silence, uh, to me, helps me connect some of those things that I'm thinking about, and ma- maybe it's the Holy Spirit, maybe it's this, my brain things popping, but I don't know, but it helps a lot.
4: Yeah, yeah I was going to say, to couch it within, you, you went right where I was thinking of rhythms of life, of kind of, we designed a communal room. But I think we we need personal rules of life, or maybe rhythms, this is a better way to think of it. Not as rule can sound rigid, although rule comes from the Greek word for trellis. So the image is a trellis and a garden that simply gives direction for a vine to grow. Great image. And so rule of life is simply a um, A plan for our spiritual lives it gives direction for how we want to grow and the sad thing is that most Christians don't have an intentional plan for spiritual growth they talk about prayer but they don't pray they read scripture every once in a while but they don't come to it expecting to hear from the Living God and I think this is often why We don't look all that different from a lot of folks in the world. And back to my whole thing of of the tsunami of secularism and what it's going to take to withstand that. It's never been easier than today to be a functional atheist. It's just really easy in our skeptical post-Christian age to be a functional atheist and so we need Um, a rule, like we need some kind of intentional plan for our lives. And I would say that that should depend on your spiritual personality. We're wired differently. Um, I think of spiritual personalities as almost like love languages with God. And what, you know, how has God um, wired you to connect with, with the divine? And for me, that entails some rhythms, my I always need to have some stuff that I'm reading that doesn't pertain to what I'm teaching or preaching on. So that helps me to stay intellectually curious. And that's actually something that I started when I was here as a student, that I would always have a stack of books on my desk that didn't have to do with any classes. It just kept kept me growing in that direction and I need that right now. Uh, I need it as a pastor, I need it as a teacher, I need mornings. Some folks need to do some devotional um, stuff in the morning. I i have I have like a, a a morning prayer liturgy that i do and but I also need to get lost in some um, some heavy theology c s Lewis said that for him devotional wasn't you know reading a little um, a, a nice little treatment of a passage, but it was working through a tough bit of theology with a pencil in one hand and a pipe in the other and so for me when i when i get but one of the other pastors in Miami, for her to do that kind of devotional work that had the opposite effect. That's why I think spiritual personalities are important here. But for me, when I'm working through some of that, it just that what a way to start the day. I just go, oh, this is this is the God I want to worship right here. I want to see the vastness, the bigness, the grandeur, the majesty. Um, so that's and for I love that you take off and have a desert day, that's what I call it, personal quarterly offsite. We would expect our businesses to do that, to get away and to reflect on what's happening there. Why aren't we doing that with our spiritual lives, with our personal lives? So having a desert day, scheduling those in, you have to put them, for me, you have to put them on the calendar or you'll never do it. And when I get away for a desert day, 24 hours outside of the zip code, so I can reflect on my life in the zip code, every time it comes around, I say, I don't have time for this, but I force myself to do it because I've put it on there. It's a discipline, and every time when I come back, I go, why don't I do this more? (laughs) And so for me, I go to this monastery. I've been going maybe, this is probably my 13th year in New Mexico. Uh, Every summer that I get away, and it's, it's off the grid, so you can't use a phone. There's no there's no internet, and it's so healthy to unplug. We need times and seasons where we do that. We really do, and and I just, um, gosh, I get recentered in my identity in Christ. Really important, really important for me. So
3: I'm taking mental notes of what they said. Um, I'm trying, like,
4: I don't want to
3: type notes. I'm trying to take mental notes, and I just realized I forgot the question. <laughs> right. That is a great problem to have. Um, this is just about, and it, the whole
0: panel doesn't have to answer, frankly. This is just a response. Rick's question was about uh, sort of proactive ways you know, we, the whole panel, all of you are evolving in your theology, you're growing in terms of your understanding. What are these ways that you're doing? Got it. Got it, yeah, got it. Yes, yes.
3: yes, remember that. <laughs> so for me, yeah. So I'm probably gonna lean a little different from some on the panel with this because for me, theology is formative, right? But all theology does not serve me well when it comes to my own spiritual formation. So there's, uh, so for example, um, Keith talked about um, the challenges that many Christians have sometimes actually consistently practicing the disciplines. And for me, some of that got reconciled through some time management strategies. So there wasn't the absence of desire. There was a presence of intent. There were just some very practical shifts I needed to make in the rhythm of my life to be able to make a proclaimed value an actual priority. So spiritual disciplines, that's proclaimed value. But it was not intent, but it was scheduling challenges, rhythms of life, life change, kids. You know, you say, I'm getting up early, and then you have a baby. (laughs) And And so I think think sometimes we can be a bit dismissive of the ways in which some of that other type of material serves our, our spiritual formation. So for me, reading those types of things are important. You know, for me, being a parent is a part of my vocation. And so I'm not just going to, I'm not just reading something on the theology of parenting. I'm reading people who are rooted in scripture, who can help give me some wisdom on how to deal with a teenager who's going through individuation. And now all of a sudden, my words and my influence don't carry the same value that they did in the previous season. Um, So for me, the the theological formation is a different kind of intentionality for me, and it's going to that is different from spiritual formation. And it is going to come down practically to two things. One is going to be the intentional exposing of myself, whether that's through print material or through YouTube. Thank God for YouTube. Um, um, That way I can do it when I'm moving portable. The intentional exposure of myself to material that stretches me theologically. Something that's in my stream or something that may not be. So I may be reading some Bart, and I don't line up with him on everything. And I may be be reading Brueggemann's Prophetic Imagination, and I don't line up with him on a number of different things. So it's going to be intentionality, but that's a different kind of reading for me. That's not in my spiritual formation time. And then secondly, it is going to be the intentional developing of relationships with people who I feel like feed me in that way. So I know before I leave here, there are a couple of people I'm going to ask for their number. Because in, in hearing them present, Um, whether they were a speaker or a person I had a conversation with I was um, stretched, replenished fed um, so to speak in a way and so when I sense those kind of connections I try to develop relationships with those people and maintain those relationships with those people because pastoring can make you an unintentional pragmatist, and you can stop being the resident theologian. So that's why those kind of relationships are, um, are important for me. So those are the two <coughs> primary ways that, that uh, I'm going to approach. Can I say one more thing based on something that he said? When as he's talking about the spiritual distance, distance please. I didn't, know, I didn't know if I wanted, to, and the challenge that people have. I didn't know if I want to high five them or hug them or what. Uh, <laughs> I uh, uh, Give them a low five, a high five. <laughs> um, but I would say, and this is kind of one of the critiques I have about the contemporary missional movement, at least some of the conversations I've had, this is why I would argue the importance of the planting of more missional churches and the intentional injection of missional churches into the larger conversation about Christian church, specifically here in America. And I think sometimes when it comes to doing those things, missional communities and people with missional imagination can be so anti-trend that you don't see that we miss the value in some ways of saying not for the purpose of self-promotion, but for the purpose of the furthering of the gospel and providing people an alternative that they may not have been exposed to um there needs to be the planting of those churches and the verbal proclamation and the visible demonstration that we are here and that's why and i I know neither one of these guys were saying this but this is why we are pro social social media Mm -hmm. because social media is discipling a generation culture disciples too not just the church And if our voices are not injected into that conversation, Mm -hmm. we'll be people sitting, not doing it, telling the people who are doing it that they aren't doing it right. Mm -hmm. And so this is why I want to plant as many churches as we can. And that's why I feel like voices like these voices on the panel need to be voices that are interjected into the larger Christian conversation outside the context of spaces like this. Mm -hmm. We were driving home yesterday after Keith's talk, I told Brandon, I said, I was so glad to hear he's about to re-engage a church. Mm -hmm. I was like, the church needs him. Mm -hmm. Because if he's not in the church, the only people that get to benefit from the grace of God on his life are people in seminaries. So you rob lay people of exposure to this kind of imagination. Then we critique the churches that are filled with them when they haven't been exposed to it. So that's something I think. I think we we got to be careful that we're not so anti-trend that we don't value the message enough to say this needs to be injected into the larger conversation. And what and what where what field are they playing ball in? Now let's get our ball on that field. That's kind of what that's what I'm all about. And. Um, that's kind of had nothing to do with the question, but I was. <laughs> gonna, <laughs> you know, know. Mean, I was. i right. you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I, wanna, I wanna you want to
2: I want to answer this too. Um, my team hears me talk about this all the time, and anybody who's friends with me, i would probably say the book that shifted my ministry is all of Pete Skizer's work on emotionally healthy spirituality. Mm-hmm. So all this rhythm of rhythm language that you're hearing comes from that. If you haven't read the book, it's basically. Um, this idea, you know, that you can, an emotionally healthy leader makes an emo, emotionally healthy church. You can't be emotion, spiritually healthy if you're not emotionally healthy. Mm-hmm. If you have not gotten a hold of this book, mm-hmm. I need you to get a hold of this book in all of its iterations. So the most emotionally healthy church, emotionally healthy spirituality, and his newest book, Emotionally Healthy Leader. I think that allowed me to, to like growing in, in theology and, Allowed me to do the healing that was necessary so that you could model healing and show people what healing really, really looks like. Um, Also, encouraging people um, not to be a fraud. I think Christians are fraudulent because they're not honest about what is happening with me, how am I walking this life, where is God in the good and in the bad. You don't have to be a fraud, you just have to be faithful. And so, somebody has helped them unearth that. So, I love theology. I love Practical stuff. I love all of those things, but just the idea of being honest about your emotional wholeness and the depth of that is interconnected to your spiritual wholeness and depth of that. That literally like changed the game for me completely. Um, a couple other things. Two, two other things. One would be um, seeking wisdom. When I was I was telling somebody when I was a kid, I would read the story of Solomon and two ba- you know the baby two ladies all that other kind of crazy <laughs> stuff. And um, I, when I read it, I said to myself, Lord, I get, this is how my brain was at eight, I get that this is a unique story and that I can't have the wisdom that Solomon asked for. But if I could just get like an ounce of it, like that would be great. And so like this season of my life, just really, really seeking wisdom in all its forms, wisdom in unlikely paid places, wisdom for people don't agree with me theologically or politically. People just, where is wisdom hiding out and from our kids, from our seniors? Like really, really, really seeking wisdom and seeing how that seeps into, um, into my ministry and my life. So being emotionally and healthy, um, being healthy emotionally and spiritually is one. Wisdom would be two. And I think the third thing is um, what I would call play. I had to. Lindsay and I both had writing assignments at the same time. We were trying to get it done. And um, the idea of, of the first question in the Westminster Catechism, right? What is the chief end of man <laughs> to glorify God and enjoy God forever? To me, I see that as sort of being creative. And what does godly or God-filled or holy play look like? I was a jazz major in college, so that's that was singing on a Friday night with a guy named Pete. We called it Peter and the Preacher, and it was. R&B and pop and jazz like that was part of Godly play or it was knitting or it was taking a writing assignment and so I find that to be extremely life giving because people just forget that we serve a creative God and all the stuff that you all are doing is deep creativity deep Godly play so how are you practicing that so that everything is not simply just am I getting all the right theology am I getting all the right practice how do I enjoy God
0: Do do your churches have a uh, sort of global connection, one way or the other? And if so, is that informing, sort of the same question, is that helping to shape and form your missional and theological understanding, So I would be
3: yes, but it's an indirect connection, meaning it is my, there's no formal relationship with my church, with with our church, with other churches, but there are relationships that I have with other pastors. We're serving in different parts of the world, and so indirectly, that inform, impacts our church. It impacts me, obviously. I get to see what God is doing, bring it back, talk about it. Sometimes we, we take footage of it and bring it back so that people can see. And um, yeah, I think probably the greatest impact it's had for us is seeing what God is doing in areas that are kind of like post-Christianism mm-hmm. um, and that being a picture of possibility for the fruitfulness of the church in an age where we're experiencing a tsunami of secularism
5: over here in america thanks very much. i i my church is not very good at that um we've uh we've done some work um indirectly um and i talked about the la church planting movement every time we planted a church we partner up with um Compassion International to actually uh, plant a church overseas. Uh, so, so there were nine partnerships that started a church overseas every time we planted one um, uh, locally. Uh, and then we have some missionaries that we support who are overseas. Uh, but in terms of really getting those conversations into worship and uh the the kind of the forefront of the community i don't think they're very good at that
2: okay so um, i be, i represent mid council leadership in the PCUSA. so of course the presbytery Church is clearly connected globally um i'm gonna have this sidebar conversation with Lindsay. <laughs> i was, as a new member of this presbytery i think that there are Churches of 91 that are connected to stuff globally, but then we have a lot of new worshiping communities that have Folks who are here like global folks here I think we're still trying to make sense of how that gets connected to our Our non global churches. Is that fair to say? Lindsay, like how, can you speak to that a little
1: bit? Yeah, so 60% of our new worshiping communities in the Presbyterian greater Atlanta are new immigrant communities and um And so uh, we have 23 communities total, so this is a good number of them and what we're trying to do. And and these are groups that said, hey, we're Presbyterian, we're here. (laughs) And we said, okay, great. Um, And we're not trying to convert them or anything. We just have a large number of, Atlanta has a large number of international peoples, including the refugee area for the entire state of Georgia. So um, one of the ways that we're trying to do this as a Presbytery is connect them through and through. With other neighboring congregations, so that you can build relationships internationally, and gain a real sense of what it's like, um, and build more international relationships. So it's a small thing, but I mean, all the churches definitely have international relations. But that's what we're trying to do with the worshiping communities, and it's working well. A lot of churches have really meaningful partnerships and sets of relationships with people, and so it's having um, a local church um, impact like you, and the global. So. Uh, partners come around new worshiping communities get to know the local people there but they also they go back to the new worshiping community's home right. and we're starting to see that back and forth so that the local missions and then the global missions are over, overlapping since it's such a small world these days thank you
4: thank you uh, yeah our church um, works with a, a church in Havana Cuba and for our context uh, that just made sense we've tried some other initiatives other countries but that's the one that has uh, kind of continued and a lot of our congregation is Cuban and so um, it's been an amazing partnership we learn as much if not more than our Cuban friends in Havana from the experience and we try to go with that posture we tell the church over there use us what can we help you do that you can't do on your own Um, let's not just replicate what they can do can you figure out something for us to do when we come and we partner and so um, there's usually some really creative stuff that comes out of that we learn so much from their faith I did so a little bit like Darius was saying of his own experiences and then bringing that back to the congregation and I would actually say in response to, to Rick's question before as well how do you continue to grow theologically and spiritually one is, I think, exposure to the, the church in the two-thirds world and just kind of our... I mean, we make up, you know, 5% of the world's population. Most Americans think we make up like 80%, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when I graduated from college, I took a trip around. I was really convicted about this. I took a trip around the world with just a backpack. and A group of pastor friends helped me kind of put together this trip. And so I went to 10 different nations in six months. Stayed with pastors, missionaries, in monasteries and seminaries. Stayed with Baptists. I was in England. um, Went to Amsterdam, worked in the red light district with uh, a ministry, reaching out to prostitutes and drug dealers. Went to Egypt and stayed with Coptic monks. Went into Kenya and worked in the Kibera slums, largest slums in all of Africa. Went to India and spent a couple weeks working in Mother Teresa's Home of the Dying. Hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Went into China and spent a month with the un- underground church uh, in Beijing, Shanghai, Kunming, Nanning, Hong Kong. Went to Indonesia, spent a month with a, a missionary uh, that was planting churches, uh, planting churches among youth that had dropped out of school and were sniffing glue on the streets and almost stayed in Jakarta, fell in love with Jakarta, huge, big, dirty city, uh, nearly 20 million Muslims, just fell in love with it. And then went to Peru and had sponsored some children through Peru for a couple years, so got to meet their families. And, and that's the first time I went to the monastery because I just needed time to process. <laughs> so I went to this monastery for a month, took like a vow of silence for a couple of weeks and just tried to, to make sense of, of what I experienced. And my faith grew so much, became extremely ecumenical. I was with, stayed with Catholics, Orthodox, Nazarene, Baptists, very conservative Baptists, and then Charismatics who were trying to raise the dead. Um, it was an unbelievable. my faith uh, and my theology expanded so much. And then another thing that I've done is I was convicted a few years ago that I just looked at my bookshelf and I said, "This is—it's a bunch of like white dudes." And how many females am I reading? And how many people of color? And I've tried to make a real intentional effort. I know it wasn't represented my three men and a baby. I did think about that. Um, but and and MLK King has had a massive influence. So there could have been four men and a baby, but didn't so. Um, and so I've made a real intentional effort. And as a preacher, something that helped me was the African Bible Commentary. Mm. Um, it's written, it's, it's a one volume, deals with the entire, um, entire Bible. And it's written by all um, African theologians and pastors. Uh, now it does, for some folks, it's going to be a more conservative bent. Um, I love it. And I would always read that in whatever text I'm preaching I always consult that to get their perspective and also it helps me understand our perspective one of the best ways to understand our culture is to go to another culture and um, John Stott is the the only uh, white boy in the book so he does like a little intro and I love Stott I love John Stott's work so um, that's just been a helpful in giving another perspective and learning, learning from that perspective.
0: One significant takeaway from all the things we've heard that have really come out of Rick's question is a robust, evolving, living, missional, theological understanding is not a naturally occurring element. Mm -hmm. That people who maintain that and who grow are highly proactive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I think. That's just a worthwhile takeaway, that um, it will not happen on its own. And I think that's hearing how each of you interact with that, that's a huge help for me. So um, anyway, thanks for that. Kevin, I would love to ask you a question, because I was pretty enamored with your commitment to neighborhoods um, and how it's fairly simple. Your congregation should look like your neighborhood, and that answers a whole lot of your questions in terms of who should be in your seats. Uh, Except I went home last night thinking about how segregated a good number of our neighborhoods are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh if our churches look like our neighborhoods, that would send an implicit message that I'm not sure is is um mm-hmm. well, that we just need to think about, maybe is all. And so um for folks who aren't doing church in downtown LA, I would love to hear you talk about what it means to be missional missional, committed to your neighborhood, but understanding some of the other yeah. implicit messages that might send. Does that make sense?
5: Yeah. <laughs> I, I I think you should plant a church <laughs> in an inter- intersection neighborhood. Uh, so um, that's one thought. Um, I think um, I think we need more uh, intersection churches. Uh, so uh, planting with intentionality, uh, in terms of bringing people together. Creating a reconciling culture, community, um, and so uh, maybe that's something that your church could do. Um, you don't. Uh, you could be a church in your neighborhood and also plant another church in an intersection neighborhood. Um, so um, I think there's also the. Um, if your church is completely uh, mono, uh, mo- if your neighborhood is completely monoethnic, um, I-, I think um, you know there are all different kinds of measures of diversity, uh, lifestyles, and uh, whoever there might be. Uh, I think there should be a culture of just openness to people who are different. Mm. Uh, and having um, a kind of learning and whatever you can do to do that, I think it's critical to a church. Um, uh, but I do believe in a, a importance of planting more multi ethnic churches, multi ethnic churches, or multi socioeconomic churches, and becoming intentionally that. I I, I believe in that and more than in a just contextualizing in a neighborhood sense, uh, because I believe that that's. That is key to um, reconciliation um, in the kingdom of God. If we can't do community together, um, can we really be a body of Christ together? Um, and um, so, um, I would I would uh, say that we all need to be creative about it, but don't just think in terms of the box of your existing church. Um, uh, a church, planting a church is a, um, it's just like, okay, well, if, if I can, you know, it's like a parent um, uh, not being able to accomplish certain things because of the inherent limitations of that my parents, say my parents were Korean-speaking, they didn't speak English that well, they were immigrants in the U.S., there were certain things that they couldn't accomplish, but they had me, <laughs> and so I was able to do things that they couldn't do, so have a baby. Very
4: much.
0: Just for the pause for a minute. Keith, one of the things uh, that I heard you talk about, you know, in terms of lessons I learned from planting a church, things I do differently. You said you would be, and (laughs) this is contrary to what you often hear, especially mainliners. Mainliners talk about. You said you would. You wish you were a part of a planting organization or denomination from the beginning. Yeah. Um, could you just speak a little more to that and, and what that would mean and you know, for those of us who are planted well within a uh, denomination remind us why we love it and things like that <laughs> <laughs> uh,
4: great question well um, kind of do it from a, answer it twofold one from just kind of a theological perspective and one from maybe a practical on a practical level so if I forget about that remind me of the practical and remind me Stefan Potts because that's where I'm gonna go with that so on the theological level I just that was really the kicker for us and again just to um, I'm to tip my hat to dr. Guter it was when I was at Princeton and this I was meeting with this group every six months uh, dr. Guter was a guide for us and I was able to journey with him during my three years here. Um, he's been an incredible mentor in my life. And he really was the one who made me wrestle with the ecumenical question, where he asked, so, so you guys are going to do this on your own, huh? <laughs> and he's so, he's so gentle. And of course, um, if, if you know him, then you know that. And, and uh, he just kind of dropped that uh, ticking time bomb. And eventually, when we planted, we just realized, "Wow, we we what is this communicating?" And it really was a theological conviction of we've got to partner. We looked at some denominations at the time. We felt that that um, being in a denomination was sort of a, a step backwards. Um, and and I don't think that anymore. We we looked at a couple denominations, but we didn't do it. I don't think that anymore. I think there's some wonderful. The ecumenism, you know, these, these, maybe you could say six, maybe seven streams of our faith. And I almost feel like, and I drink from these different wells, whether it's the Orthodox or it's the Reformed or the Charismatic. or I drink from and learn so much from each of them. Our family is really big. It's wonderful. Our family is really wonderful. I actually feel like for me to run with one denomination, I I want to be uh, a person who swims in each of the streams. And I'm very encouraged about what's kind of happening. I used to think that it was gonna be a post-denominational kind of movement that takes place. It knocks down the denominational walls. I, I seem to think the future where we're headed is that we're gonna overcome the denominational distinctions while retaining the good denominational identity. And there's some wonderful things to be Embraced in these different uh, streams. Um, so find the best in your stream. Just kind of how, like, how you exegete the city, exegete your denomination or your tradition. Begin with the best and embrace those things and live into it. So now that I'm a Quaker university man, I'm researching and, and learning about that Quaker stream and celebrating the equality, celebrating the nonviolence celebrating the ethic of simplicity, wonderful things that they've contributed to our faith, right? For instance, the equality thing, I was telling someone yesterday, Quakers are credited with inventing the, the price tag. It's because it used to be a barter system. And they, the Quakers felt that that was a form of deceit. I mean, all commerce really pretty much worked like that. You come in and they would size you up and the price would be a result of that. And the Quakers said, no, we'll put a price tag on things. Everybody gets the same price. That's mm-hmm. yeah, wonderful. So find those things that you can celebrate. The practical would be uh, in Stefan Pass's book, Planting Churches in the Secular West. He talks about he uh, engages with innovation theory, and he talks about that you can have three different three different environments for innovation, and he wants to bring this into the church. And the first one that he calls free havens, and this is where it's just all like-minded people kind of cutting themselves off, and they're going to just... Think about this. Can you plan innovation, firstly? Can you actually plan innovation? So in a free haven, they get together to try and innovate, but you can't have it all mapped out. That's what innovation is. They're able to do that, but then he talks about a laboratory that brings people in from different backgrounds, and it moves slower, but it can have a greater influence because of that, because it's not just a little sect. And then I forgot what he calls the third uh, environment, but this is, the church equivalent would be Fresh Expressions. You do some more with Fresh Expressions, right? Yeah. Which it's happening, it's innovation, an attempt towards innovation, uh, within denominational and traditional structures. And some of the stuff that's happening in the Fresh Expressions movement with the mixed economy, that you can have traditional structures of worship with these kind of experimental in this mixed economy of uh, the church. Um, what was the original question? It was
0: just about being a part of a denominational or organization. Oh, yeah.
4: Oh, yeah. So there's ways. I'm, I'm, uh, I want to be a part of the laboratory, and to my denominational sisters and brothers, I think there are ways to get creative uh, within uh, this structure over here, but can innovation, um, can it be planned out? I think you have to have some freedom in there. You have to have some leaders that'll, that uh, will allow you some space to experiment. We've got to be doing that.
0: Thank yeah, very much. Um, I've got, just recognizing time, we've got a few minutes left. This, this is sort of a you know, little quick shot question for whoever would like to. But I've just got to say, you start to notice trends. I remember the first time I used to, long ago, was a youth director. And uh, y- you don't notice how weird you are till you go to a youth director's like, conference. And you go, oh, gosh, we're all the same, kind of weird. <laughs> um, you start to see trends. Similarly, you start to see trends when you get uh, folks like this. In the same room and there are two trends that have just been interesting to me and I'd love to hear if you'd like to comment on them. Uh, 75% of our panel has identified as charismatic here at Princeton Theological Seminary as charismatic or neo-charismatic. That's noteworthy to me and almost all of our panelists referenced grief as a major part of leading an a missional uh, endeavor. That's noteworthy to me. And I just wonder if you uh, want to offer a comment we're well.
4: and then I'll offer just a couple minutes for follow-up questions. Who's the twenty-five percent that did not? Uh, <laughs> I don't believe Pam said. I okay. thought it was me, no,
0: it was definitely not you. Okay. <laughs> What's did Pam say that? Okay. So, like I said, what, my math was off by twenty-five percent. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but uh, anyway, that was nowhere word to me. Grief and charismatic or neo-charismatic, is there any sort of observation you'd like to make about that and how that informs your missional theology? I'll,
4: I'll just do one sentence. You're going to plan a church or revitalize a church, you need the spirit, and there's going to be grief. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I, I think they gift, clearly the spirit at work for, for that spontaneity, right, That these things that come up. Um, But the other other part of grief is resilience. And I think it's the Holy Spirit that just fills you and gives you that hopefulness. And so that's the one who balances the grief or frames the grief or helps the grief make sense. And it's it's not for naught. So it's it's the Spirit, I think, reminds us of our resilience. And that's where it comes from.
5: I think, um, uh, to me, uh, contemplatives and charismatics Mm -hmm. are People swimming in a same stream with different personalities, um, and uh, and you know if we if our relationship with God is not the kind in which we could actually hear from God mm. in its mysticism, kind of mist in a mystic way, or in kind of a, a more uh, you know charismatic wordings of like word of knowledge or prophetic words or uh, where uh, where where God actually heals um, and he's involved right now. If I, I think there is a supernatural element of, uh, of the God that we worship and that we believe that he is here and he's not only working in our hearts but he's working in our midst and um, I think the, the realness of that is um, that that makes everything more real. Uh, it's not just an intellectual thing, but I think there's a mixture of um, kind of um, kind of understanding that uh, and kind of, um, kind of relating it to deep theological reflection um, and mm-hmm. a deeper kind of uh, uh, kind of biblical exegesis. Um, in in that, um, it's not just all about word of knowledge or you know kind of hearing from God in silence or whatever the contemplative or charismatic language you use but it is uh, really deeply soaking in the Word of God and uh, uh, with with all of his theological debates and so I think I think as we um, focus on both the uh, contemplative spirit uh, charismatic spirituality and deep theological reflection that's when we are able to, uh, I think, uh, uh, adequately lead a, a vibrant living congregation, um, I think. So I, I think it's critical. Um, it's not to say that if you're not a charismatic, you can't lead a vibrant living congregation. But in my experience, especially in a multi-ethnic context, um, I think it's very important. It's one of the things that bring us Together. I think if we're in a, uh, if I was in a, um, I'll just use my culture as an example, a particular uh, Presbyterian, con- a Korean, Korean uh, Presbyterian context, I think I could probably um, just do, you know, be a little bit more narrow. Uh, but I think uh, in a multi ethnic context, I think um, um, we're, we're trying to bring a lot of different kinds of people together. There has to be uh, a broader sense of um, how we have a relationship with God and how that informs us and ultimately how that informs our engagement in community so all of that yeah but the grief
3: piece I just think that it seems to me that spiritual formation is like this indispensable part of the missional conversation and so as as you get deep into that in some form or another whether you use the term help Some people use the term intelligence, but in some form or another, you're going to have to address the emotional state of individuals when dealing with their spiritual formation. And I think that's probably why we hear the common theme of grief amongst people on the Mm -hmm.
4: panel. The charismatic, sorry to go back to um, to to the secularism, but the growing phenomenon of, of secularism, of, of the skeptical age that we live in, the phrase that comes to mind is survival of the mystics.
1: Mm.
4: So not survival of the fittest, but survival of the mystics. Mm. Only the mystics are going to survive this. Mm. It's not enough to have a head full of God facts. Right. You have to have your own. Experiential relationship. And don't be scared by the word mystic. A mystic is just someone who, as I believe it was Teresa of Avila said, on friendly terms with God. She spoke of prayer as being on friendly terms with God. That's what a mystic is. And the Bible's chock full of them. Um, and so we, we need to, uh, to lean into that. And as pastors and leaders, we need to help our people cultivate an ongoing conversational relationship with the third member of the Trinity. What is a disciple? When Jesus says, My, my sheep know my voice, a disciple is someone who can hear Jesus and responds accordingly. So, yeah, we. It's not going to be enough just to, just to Google some God facts. We have to have our own intimate um, experience.